The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org. Fair in our 
this morning I want to start with a story that you may remember from Bible school or, or maybe Sunday school when you were a child. And it's found in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. It reads like this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, really, there wasn't anything wrong with building a city. But did you notice why they wanted to build that tower? They wanted to build something that would reach into the heavens to make a name for themselves. In other words, to bring glory to themselves. So, God confused their language and they scattered over the whole world. Now, you may ask, well, what's that got to do with communion? Well, let me see if I can draw a contrast for you that might help clarify my point. Last Sunday was Pentecost. You may remember what happened on Pentecost, but let me refresh your recollection. That account is found in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Hmm. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Then did you notice there were people from every nation under heaven? And they each heard the gospel preached to them in their own language. That day they learned the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. They heard that he was the son of God who came and lived a sinless life, was crucified, dead, and was buried and rose again. 
they learned that he had ascended back into heaven and was going to come again to claim those who placed faith in him. Babel was reversed, and it served God's purpose. Christ's body on earth, the church, was established that day. Now all of those new believers would return to their lands across the world and preach the gospel in those scattered tongues. And that will ultimately lead to the scene that we find in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So this morning, as we partake of these emblems, we are joining with others scattered around the world, celebrating our unity in Christ because of his death on the cross. Though we are separated and diverse, we are unified and look forward to the day that we are part of that scene around the throne, worshiping the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful plan a plan that takes the follies and foibles of we humans and turns them to your purposes to fulfill your ultimate will, to have people from every nation, tribe, and tongue know the gospel. As we take communion together with all of your people, may we be renewed in our resolve to do our part to bring others to saving faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience even to death on a cross. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Your chances of being struck by lightning are 1 in 900,000. Your chances of being struck by lightning twice are 1 in 9 million. But Roy Sullivan, a park ranger in the Shenandoah National Forest in uh, this last century, has been struck seven times. Seven times. Between 1942 and 1977, he earned the nickname the Human Lightning Rod. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for walking away from it seven times. Lots of stories. The second time, in 1969, he was driving on in the forest, on the forest roads, with the windows down. Lightning hit, struck two trees at the same time. It shot through the truck and knocked him out. And the truck just coasted to a stop with one wheel over the edge of a cliff. How would you like to wake up to that? All right. Then later on, the fifth time in 1973, he was aware of his past. And like I said, this is his fifth time. He felt, you know, the tingling in the air. So he took off running. He took off running. It wasn't fast enough. It hit him knocked him out, knocked off his boot that was still tied. <laughs> it was still tied. It shot it off his foot. And uh, in 1977, the seventh time, he had already retired. He wasn't even working for the Forest Service. He was in a boat out on a lake. He w- And he felt again. He felt, hey, man, this doesn't feel good. I better get off of the lake. Takes off, heading back to shore. Bam, gets hit. You know, of course, it knocked him out. He coasted. it. Finally, when he gets back to the house, he discovers he has no eyebrows and no eyelids. It just blasted it all off. 
we rarely see the big moments in our lives when they happen. I would think we'd notice lightning, though. We're starting a new series today called Point of Impact. It's going to be our summer series, and we want to look at impact and what happens after impact. Each day, we are confronted with weighty decisions, conflicting information, chaos. It seems like there's new, some new pressing issue constantly cropping up, things that we didn't even discuss six months ago or a year ago. Now, sometimes those decisions are simple choices. Others can be life-changing. Eva Krakow is a teacher at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom, and she postulates that we make 30, that adults make 35,000 decisions every day. I don't know how you measure that, but that's the, the estimate. Now, many of those are simple. Do we tie our shoes? Do we wear these socks? You know, some can be life-changing. Should we run this stop sign? Should we not run this stop sign? What happens after the impact of those decisions? Today, we're going to meet a young couple at a wedding who are hit by a point of impact. This was actually a couple in Oregon that were shooting their, or, their engagement photos and lightning struck in the background and so they kept the photo and I stole it and used it for a background. There we go. Now we're planning or we're going to a wedding with a young couple who are hit by a point of impact. Now we're not told their names. We're not told if they were married indoors or out, what colors they used at their wedding. We're not sure where they registered or or if they honeymooned in San Antonio or Cancun. We just know one thing. We're told that Jesus was invited to this wedding. We're in John chapter 2, and if you'll join us, if you're online, thanks. If you're on the radio, thanks for tuning in to Central Christian Church Portales. Thank you to all of you that uh, responded and let me know that I had my mic still on earlier. There's a lot of people watching online because my mic was live, and they're like, you need to turn that off. And, And I did. Thank you very much for letting me know that. And we're glad that you're with us. Now, This is a story that immediately when we start reading it, you're going to know. It's the wedding at Cana. You know this story. We don't have to pay attention. We're challenging you to pay attention. We're going to be people of the word. That's our challenge all year. So let's be in the word together. Can we do that? John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, 
and his disciples believed him. Now, point of impact is an encounter, a moment. It can be an unplanned intersection. And and that's what we're going to look at this summer. There's lots to unpack here, but let's first start talking about where. This happened in Cana. Cana is not mentioned anywhere. You want to, in my brain, I want to say, oh, Canaan. Well, that's a land. It's, it's only mentioned in the book of John, and it's mentioned in a couple of places where miracles happen. Now, the location is not known specifically today. There are three possible locations. They're all on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is like this part. It'd be up in Washington, Oregon, that area, right? And it's up in that left corner there. And you go, okay, what's the big deal? Why is that important? Because it's between Nazareth and Capernaum. Now, Nazareth, Jesus of, okay, we got that part, right? But Capernaum is where he actually did a lot of his ministry. It's right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And Cana is right between this. You see, the reason that's important is because points of impact can be unplanned. They might be at home. They might be nearby. You, you may not be prepared for them, but are you ready for God to impact you? Because it might happen nearby. Now, we're told Mary was already there. Why? Perhaps she's a hostess. Perhaps it's a family that they know well. Either way, Mary knows what's going on because she immediately knows, hey, they've run out of wine. She quickly knew about that. And Mary is confident that Jesus is able to help. That seems pretty easy. And maybe this is our first big lesson. Are we confident in Jesus? Now, you might look at that and go, that may be the dumbest question you've ever asked, Don. That is really, we're in church on a Sunday. Of course we are. No, I didn't ask if you like Jesus. Are we confident that he is in our plan? You see, the reason I ask that is because I still hear some people say, well, God only, God really, he helps you good people. I've made some mistakes. I'm too messed up. He He only helps good people. I don't deserve his help. But you see, Mary believes Jesus can help and will. Are we confident that he will intervene in our plans? See, that's where this key comes from. And I want you to look closely at Mary's direction in verse 3. Now, we get the response, why why does this matter to me? Uh, You know, and and I wanted to dig into that. I wanted to say, why did it? But he, he immediately surrendered to his mother. He did what mom said. But mom immediately tells these guys, do whatever he tells you. Now... People of the word listen to what Jesus says, not culture. And if we're making 35,000 decisions a day, we often want to know the outcome, don't we? If I do this, what will happen? If I don't do this, what will happen? I mean, we teach that to our kids. It's called consequences. So we want to play it out. We always like playing out worst case scenario. We want to figure out. But... I wonder if we're missing a point here. I hear people 
frequently will say stuff like, I wish God would just write it in the clouds for me. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? I wish there'd just be a big billboard. I wish I'd, God, I need a sign. I need you to tell me what you want me to do. Friends, we don't need a new word from God. We need to do what he's already told us. I think there's too many people that are missing that. I, they're, they're battling whatever they're battling. Maybe it's loneliness from being single. Maybe it's a battle within the family. Maybe it's, it's different things that are right in front of us and we're missing it. I've shared this story before, but it's, uh, it still sticks with me. William Randolph Hearst. Anybody remember? Big guy in California, the Hearst Castle. He was a publisher. He was uh, uh, owned a bunch of newspapers. He was the first real billionaire, and he was an art collector. And I love this story. One day he's reading in one of his papers about a particular set of paintings that had just gotten all kinds of rave reviews. And he's reading this, and he immediately decides, I have to have these. I have to have this. So he calls his art broker and sends a message to him and says, here is the, the ones I want. I want these, and I'm wiring. He wires a million dollars to his account. You get all of these paintings. I don't care what it costs. You get them. There's the million to start with. You get it, and you get them to me. Imagine his surprise the next day when he gets a telegram from his art broker, and he said, I found them. They're in good shape, and they are in your art warehouse. They are already yours. You already own these things. I wonder if we're missing the precious things we have nearby. Because we haven't completely surrendered to his control of our plans. You notice how I mentioned a minute ago, do we believe that Jesus will intervene in our plans? Because that's too many of us still live in that realm. It's our plan. Oh, and we'll add a little God into it. We'll rub a little Jesus on it and make it work. No. You see, I'm afraid we're missing his voice because we're, we're still not decided we're going to do what he says. You see, when our confidence is in God Almighty, we can go wherever he leads. We can do whatever he calls us to do. But, friends, you'll never have the strength to say no to sin until you realize the yes that Jesus offers. You'll, you'll never... F- Feel truly free from bills until you truly surrender your money and your confidence that Jesus will supply your every need. You'll, radical obedience will never make any sense to you until you understand and convinced that he has a radical love for you. Too often our confidence is in our skills and in our behaviors, and in our money, and in our uh, do it my way. Do you have confidence that God is leading and he knows what he's doing? I found a quote by a guy named John Dewey this week. We do not learn from an experience. We learn from reflecting on an experience. John Dewey was an American philosopher. He was an educator, and he founded, he was kind of one of the first guys that, that taught pragmatism, being pragmatic, being common sense as an, uh, as an educator. And he, he says, we're not learning from it. We're learning from observations we make of it. So let's, let's observe this thing. 
Let's observe this wedding. There are six jars of water off to the side. Now, this version says it is because of ceremonial cleansing. And that's what I really believed, why they were there. That just seems like a random note that six jugs of water are off over here. But do you notice they were up to 30 gallons? And if he fills them up, that's 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, all right? That is a lot. Why this miracle? Why this stuff is here? Now, I think it's because of the purifying. But listen close. In John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus is talking to a woman at a well, and he says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. Not just water. Water that, that is alive and that changes you. Is Jesus using water here to foreshadow salvation. Much the same way that Scott was talking earlier about it, it, it confused it and then salvation brought it all back together. Is, is he starting the process of salvation? See, water brings our focus back to the mercy of God. We can't make it rain. It's only in his mercy. Water washes dirt off of us. God's blood cleanses us from sin. God cleans us. I think the water is important. But I want you to note an interesting thing, an interesting note that is made in verse 7. The servants followed his instructions. Now, you might think, well, I don't get it. Now, we have, the, we have, we have 2020 reverse, right? We can see what happened. At this time, Mary is some random person, and Jesus is just some random guy that showed up. He's not Jesus the Messiah. He's just a, a dude, all right? And, and he's not wearing robes. Hello, I am Jesus. I am here to turn water to wine. No, he didn't do any of that. He's just some dude over there, right? And this, this wacko lady is telling me to go listen to some other dude. Do we hear that that's not real practical? That probably wouldn't make sense, but they followed his instructions. Imagine... For a second, you were diagnosed with a lethal condition. And the doctor comes in, you know, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk. And he says, look, you're going to die within hours if you don't take this pill. And it has to be taken every night before you go to sleep. If you miss it, you will not wake up. Are you getting it? Let me ask you that. If that was your directive, how often would you forget to take that pill? Uh, yeah, once. Uh, you ain't wrong. Yeah. Would it would it slip your mind if that was the directive? Would you forget about? No. It would be front and center. A lot of this comes from a, a quote that Franklin posted a couple of weeks ago, and it's really been sticking in my mind. A guy named Rich Velotis, who is the pastor at New Life Fellowship in Brooklyn, listen to this. A whole quote that's part of what's on the screen. Before the water turned into wine, someone had to do the ordinary, tiresome task of filling the water parts, water pots. We want the new wine to just appear. But Jesus calls us to fill the jars first. In short, God wants us to participate in our own transformation. Will you do what he says? It's a real simple 
process. Somebody had to fill those water jugs. Somebody has to make the change in you. A lot of us want to walk in here and and have it just magically all of my sin and all of my troubles and all of my struggles all just walk away. No, he wants to begin the transformation process in you. Have you surrendered to his transformation? Are you still trying to do it on your own? Now, we don't know if Jesus prayed over the jars or if he laid hands on the jars. We don't really know the physical how it happened. We just read what it says. All we know is the water at a molecular level changed. Now, this is, you got to get this. It changed from the inside out. The water didn't try harder. Nobody came along and put new labels on the bottles. Oh, that's no longer water. That's wine. I mean, from Napa Valley or wherever. No, it changed from the inside out. Alexander Pope is a 17th century English poet, and he said, The modest water saw God and blushed. But we need to get this. The Messiah took ordinary water and turned it into something extraordinary. He does the exact same thing to ordinary people. But it's not because we tried harder. It's because he changes from the inside down to the atomic level and changed its, its character. I hope that you're getting the metaphor of our lives about the containers. What we are empty of, Jesus is full of. What we lack, he is never in short supply. We hand him our sin. He gives us a beautiful exchange of his salvation. Transformation, though, happens after we surrender, not before. A lot of people just want new wine. Just make me new. I love that. But new has to be a transformation. I'm afraid we're missing the message here. It's not act different. And slap a new label on the outside. It is be changed from the inside out. Surrendering more. Now, depending on your version, it says something about the host or the master of ceremonies. In mine, it said the the head waiter was, he was impressed. Excuse me, he didn't know. He didn't know where the wine came from. His thought was the groom had purchased really good wine and had saved it back. And he thinks that. And I don't think he's the only one that missed the miracle. I mean, if you're at the dinner table and you're just you know, eating and somebody hands it out, you didn't know where it came from either. He didn't see what happened. I wonder how many of the guests missed the story of the winemaker because they were so fascinated with the wine. And I think the metaphor is powerful for you and me, too. Pay less attention to the wine and more attention to the winemaker. I think too many times we get so focused on the new car or the the bigger house or the more money or the things on the outside that would show we are a different person than what we used to know. You hearing me? That we've been changed. We're better. We're we're more advanced. We've got all of this. uh, we're, We're better people. But It's got to be on the inside. This miracle shows us Jesus can provide for our needs. Needs, not wants. Needs. So we can 
Meet him at a base level and go deeper. Pursue a deeper relationship with him. Now, I don't know what your vacation plans are this summer, but if you want to see the largest Taco Bell in America, it is in Las Vegas, Nevada. It is two stories. It has a gift shop. It has a special menu, and it has a wedding chapel. It's only been open about two years. Uh, They actually had on the sign outside, get a ring for your finger and a gordita for your belly. So, uh, you know, if that's where you want to go on vacation, that's totally fine. But I just wanted you to hear about it. I couldn't get a picture of it, but I I remember reading about it. One of my favorite billboards, I think it was in Alabama or Mississippi somewhere, and it was a billboard for uh, colon cancer research. And and what it said up on the billboard It said, this year, thousands of men will die from stubbornness. And somebody had come along with spray paint and said, no, we won't. (laughs) You got to work with that. You got to think about that a second. We are stubborn. Look, the between the lines lesson here that is really getting me is Jesus' followers are party goers. There's a huge lesson here, and it's not, was the wine alcoholic? See, now, when I grew up, that's how the story was always told. Well, in their country, they didn't have iced tea. We have iced tea. It's the same stuff. You know, actually, that doesn't wash, because in the story itself, it says that, some, you know, that they were getting drunk. Well, they didn't get drunk on iced tea. It was alcoholic wine. And legalists, we talked last week about legalism. Legalists want to find an out on this story. We want, to, we want to pretty it up. We want to clean it up. But you really can't. There is no way to take this one out. Listen to me now. Jesus made the party go on. He kept the party going. Now, in the Holman Christian Standard Version... It says on the third day. Now, some of your versions, it just said on this particular day. But on this one, it says on the third day. These weddings could be seven-day feasts. They could go, and they went days and nights, and there was music. Why didn't Jesus use this point to make his statement about how bad alcohol is? You hear me? It's going to get ugly. Just hang on, all right? Why didn't he come out and just smack? Oh, man, I got it right here. I can let it all out. I can level these people. This is bad and this is evil. Why didn't he? Perhaps Jesus wants us to participate in life. Now, hear me. I am not in any way preaching debauchery or drunkenness. That is absolutely forbidden in Scripture. That we, We've talked about that in legalism. It is very, very specific. We don't, that's not what I'm, I'm arguing for. I'm wondering, though, if God doesn't want us to participate in life. Every year at graduation, we, we spout out Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Wonderful verse, beautiful, fantastic, fantastic valedictorian speech, perfect, right? But the, the beginning of that chapter is really interesting. And I'm afraid we miss the strength that is there. In Jeremiah 29, specifically in verse 5, he tells it, listen close. He says, build homes and plan to stay. 
plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Do you get the math there? Of, I mean, that's going to be an amount of time, right? The, the, you're, he's intending for them to stay there. He says, multiply, do not dwindle away. And listen to this in verse 7, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will detem- determine your welfare. He didn't preach. He didn't advocate removing ourselves from culture. He said, encourage the culture to live like Jesus. He, he is speaking into people, I'm sending you into exile, but I want you to thrive there. This particular one in Cana is one of ten parties that was, Je- that at least ten parties that Jesus was invited to and attended. And I want you to note the reference to the third day. Is there another party he's inviting you to? You to attend? But will you miss the party because of legalism? I'm worried about that. I'm, I'm concerned about that, that we are so focused on dotting every I and crossing every T. Again, I want us to be godly people, okay? But I want us to look at what Scripture says. And I wonder if we're missing, we're missing so much because we're so busy looking at the wine and we're not looking at the winemaker. You see, a point of impact is an unexpected encounter. We didn't see it coming. It was just some random wedding. It was just some party. We rarely see the big moments in our lives when they happen. So this is where this gets down, rubber meets the road. Maybe God is trying to get your attention right now right now, today, about something you're dealing with. You might be in a storm, a personal, a financial, a a physical. You may be in a storm. Is there a lesson to be learned in that storm? Maybe it's the people you've met. Maybe it's people around you. Is there someone that will impact you, that you've just recently met, you've recently come in contact with? Is there someone that will impact you or you can impact for him? What about the times we're in? All of the madness, all of the craziness, all of these decisions, like I said at the beginning, it seems like every week there's something new. We've got to figure out where we stand on this issue about this thing and how we're going to deal with it. Is he wanting us to grow more or protest more? Is he wanting us to love people more or? That's what I'm asking. How is he impacting you? You see, as we look at these this summer, I pray that they are impactful and that we make changes because those are impacts. That could change our very lives. Pray with me, would you? Almighty God, thank you for this wedding and the lessons we learn. And may you continue to teach us of impact 
of things that have happened to us and things that we can do to impact others. There is nothing that can save us, nothing that can change us except your blood. Nothing can wash me clean but your blood. Thank you for being the winemaker. Thank you for being the creator, God, that sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Father, today, open our eyes to how you are teaching us, even today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.